Hello, everybody. How are y'all tonight? This is Alan Free, the old king of the moondogger. Now there's another group of morons running around in the outfield. And the river, just depending on what day you were there, it was flowing orange, red, and uh, just all. It, 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 was, it was almost an alien environment. Welcome to the Cleveland History Project here on the Illuminati Social Club. I'm Jason from Cleveland. This city loves its sports teams. From the dog pound of the Browns to John Adams banging his drum for the Indians since the early 1970s, this city has lived and died with its teams. Mostly died when you look back on it. However, despite how bad things got for the Indians through the years, there is one major black eye for this team and the city as a whole. Hi, Jason. I'm really excited to hear about your stories from Cleveland, but I've got a question about one of them. You and I are mutual baseball fans, so I'd like to know all about the infamous 10-cent beer night, or dime beer night, as it may be referred to in other places. I'd love to hear the story. Thanks. Well, Oliver, around here, it is 10-cent beer night. An internet search for nickel beer night, cheap beer night, or any variation nets a link to the Wikipedia article for the events that transpired in Cleveland on June 4th, 1974. However, to get a full picture of what happened, we have to go back to May 29th of the same year, but in Arlington, Texas. In the bottom of the eighth inning, the Rangers' Lenny Randall bunted down the first base line and purposely ran into the Indians' relief pitcher, Milt Wilcox, because he had thrown a ball too close to the batter's feet a pitch earlier. Tempers had been flaring all game, and this set off a bench-clearing brawl. When the cloud of dust had settled, nobody was ejected, but fans behind the Indians' dugout began throwing things at Cleveland players and taunting the catcher, Dave Duncan, who would attempt to climb over the dugout. It took several teammates and their manager to physically hold him back. As a quick side note, Indians infielder Jack Bonimer would be punched in the mouth that night by Texas Rangers first baseman Mike Hargrove. If that name doesn't ring a bell, stay tuned to the end of the episode. The brawl was mentioned in the newspaper daily, and Texas Rangers manager, wait for it, Billy Martin, when asked if he was going to take his armor to Cleveland, Martin replied, Nah, they don't have enough fans to worry about. Cleveland radio personalities Pete Franklin and Joe Tate kept the fire stoked during the week leading up to the next time the two teams would meet, which would also be Tencent Beer Night. What could go wrong? Contrary to popular belief, the promotion was already scheduled to happen and was not a last-minute idea to bring in more fans. The team had held similar events in years past without incident. However, Due to the animosity that had built up over the prior week, along with newspaper articles and editorial cartoons featuring the team's mascot holding boxing gloves and the caption, Be Ready for Anything, more than 25,000 people had attended, and they brought their dimes. The Indians' general manager, Phil Segui, had stated that he expected this series against the Rangers to be one of the quietest of the year. Nobody was looking to repeat the chaos from the previous week. He wasn't wrong about the teams not wanting more fighting, but he didn't plan on the fans. 
The beer was supplied by Stroh's, and it was, according to a June 5, 1974 Plain Dealer story on the incident, 12-ounce cups of 3-2 beer, that is 3.2% alcohol, limited to six per customer at one time, with no limit on how many times anyone could buy it. Also, the drinking age in Ohio was 18 years old for 3-2 beer. According to articles I've read for this episode, there were a significant number of underage fans, in quotes of course, who were being supplied beer. It is also believed that many of the so-called fans had partaken in adult beverages prior to game time. One of the articles written about this night was written by Paul Jackson in 1987. It will be linked in the show notes and is recommended reading. When the game started, some people had brought firecrackers and were lighting them off from the first pitch. In the second inning, the Rangers took the lead on a home run by Tom Grieve, and shortly after that, a woman ran into the Indians' on-deck circle and exposed her ample bosom to the beer-soaked crowd. She also attempted to give the umpire crew chief, Nestor Shylack, a kiss, but he was not having it. This was just the beginning. In the fourth inning, after Grieve hit his second home run of the night for the Rangers, a man in his birthday suit, and it most likely wasn't his birthday, ran and slid into second base. I can only imagine that he got dirt in places best left undirtied. In the home half of the fourth, the Rangers pitcher caught a sharply hit line drive in his stomach, which caused him to writhe on the ground and resulted in the fans taking notice and chanting, hit him again, harder. Later in the inning, Rangers manager Billy Martin came onto the field to argue a call with umpires and was met with a hail of plastic beer cups, some still containing beer, which would be called alcohol abuse if it was actual good beer. Martin, who always knew how opposing crowds felt about him, blew kisses to the fans in the stands. After reading the numerous articles I could find, I would not have objected to the game being called at this point. But for some reason, it was allowed to continue. Fans would make their way onto the field and get chased by security. Fans that somehow managed to stay in the stands would throw rocks, batteries, cups, and golf balls onto the field. Golf balls? Really? In a baseball park? Mike Hargrove came on to play first base for the Rangers and was greeted with a jug of Thunderbird wine that had barely missed his head. More streakers entered the field of play, some stripping in the outfield and leaving their clothes. Others had begun tearing the padding off the outfield wall. Still others threw lit firecrackers into the Rangers' dugout. By the seventh inning, the actual baseball fans were escaping the stadium. The members of the Cleveland Indians' front office, who were in attendance, also casually left. Believe it or not, through all this, there was still a baseball game going on, and it was the bottom of the ninth. The Indians had come back to tie the game after being down at one point by a score of 5-1. to one. The winning run was on second, and it was at that point somebody from the stands decided to take home a souvenir from the evening by trying to take a Rangers outfielder's baseball cap. The outfielder, when he turned to confront the thief, tripped on his own feet and fell to the ground. Manager Billy Martin, who lost view of the outfielder and thought that he was attacked, grabbed a bat and ran toward the fallen player, and his team followed. 
It was then that things got serious, and I think only the words of Paul Jackson from his article could set the scene. And I quote, Martin and his team stormed the diamond, infielders filling out their ranks. When they reached the outfielder, the Rangers found Burroughs flustered but unharmed. More worrisome was the effect of their charge on the assembly. The jovial, frolicking nudist had disappeared. The mob that replaced them kept its clothes on and brandished an arsenal that made Martin's Louisville slugger look like a child's toy. The Rangers manager spotted people wielding chains, knives, and clubs fashioned from pieces of stadium seats. The 25 Texas players quickly found themselves surrounded by 200 angry drunks, and more were tumbling over the wall onto the field. The Texas Rangers had been ambushed. Excerpt from Paul Jackson's article, The Night Beer and Violence Bubbled Over in Cleveland. Link in the show notes. Indians manager Ken Aspermonte ordered his players to defend the Rangers players. Eventually, both teams would escape through the dugouts, leaving the angry mob on the field. At this point, the Indians' play-by-play announcer, Joe Tate, who is never at a loss for words, was left speechless. The mob had, to use the baseball term, stolen the bases. All three base pads were taken from the field and had never been recovered. Umpire crew chief Nestor Shylak, who looked down to see a hunting knife laying blade down behind his leg, forfeited the game to the Rangers. The Indians players volunteered to escort the Rangers players to their bus. When the dust settled, nine fans would be arrested on charges of disorderly conduct. The Indians announced that four-cup limits would be placed on all future 10-cent beer promotions. The American League president canceled all promotional events pending review by the league. The Indians would finish the 1974 season with a mediocre record of 77-85, and and Ken Aspermonte would be replaced by player Frank Robinson, who had become the first black manager in the major leagues. Mike Hargrove, who was mentioned earlier, would eventually play for the Indians in the early 80s. His style, when he was at the plate, earned him the nickname the human rain delay, and later become the manager who would lead the Indians to two World Series appearances in 1995 and 1997. I started this episode thinking it was going to be a fun, lighthearted look at the absurdity of fans who drank a bit too much and got a little uninhibited. I walked away with a feeling of shame and sadness for this city. This would not be the last baseball riot as only five years later, Chicago's Comiskey Park, fans would storm onto the field in between games of a doubleheader during the infamous Disco Demolition Night. Sources for this episode come from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, issues dating between May 30th and June 6, 1974, ESPN.com archives updated June 4th, 2008, and of course, Wikipedia. Thank you to Oliver Rockside for providing the question at the beginning and to Stephanie Tyler for the audio clip heard during the episode. I'd like to thank you all for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this look at a very dark day in Cleveland history. Ladies and gentlemen, remember, Cleveland rocks. <laughs>